0: If you would please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. As I worked in this text this week, and as I do what I do, as I pray for the congregation, the needs in this body, I thought of many of you, how this passage might apply to your life. I thought of Ron and this very recent loss of Diane. I thought of many others who are struggling with many things. And this is the question that came to my mind that I want to present before you. Where do you go when the bottom falls out? When your loved one is taken from you, maybe diagnosed with a life-altering disease like dementia? Where do you go when your adult children go off the rails? Where do you go when you seem to be losing the ongoing battle with depression or anxiety Or maybe you've been reminded in recent weeks in Romans that you are losing the battle against the flesh. Where do you go when the Lord has led you into the wilderness? When you are living in the valley? When everything seems against you? Do you ever wonder as Lydia mentioned earlier, when everything seems against you, is God against me? Is He punishing me for something that I have done? Is He giving me over to my enemies? If that's how you're feeling, you need to remember that life in the valley makes it hard to see the big picture. It's difficult to see the way that things really are and so easy to come to feel in your pain that maybe God is against you. And so if you are living in the valley today, this is what you need. You need to be brought to the summit so that you can see things the way that God sees them, So that you can see your life the way that God sees your life. So that you can see yourself the way that God sees you. And in our passage this morning, that's what Paul is doing for us. He is bringing us to the very top of the mountain. Inviting us to look around and become convinced of the reality of our situation if we Are in Christ. The book of Romans may be the best book in all of the Bible. All of the books of the Bible bring us to the mountains, so to speak, to see things from God's perspective. But the book of Romans is like the Himalayas, the highest range of mountains. And Romans 8 is like Mount Everest. The tallest mountain in the range, and today we come to the conclusion of Romans eight, which is the Summit of the tallest mountain and one of the most remarkable books in all of the bible and Here Paul gives us the most glorious view of god 's posture, his perspective on you, if you are in Christ Jesus, the perspective that you need today if you find yourself in the valley. And let me just say to the rest of you that if you're not in the valley today, you will be, you will be eventually. And when the bottom falls out for you, where will you go? I invite you to come here, to Romans 8, to look at the amazing vistas of God's grace and to see that while everything may seem to be against you, God is not against you if you are in Christ. He is for you. This passage is organized around a number of rhetorical Questions, Rhetorical questions are not really questions. They are statements. It's a way to emphasize an emphatic truth or a point. And so as we walk through these questions, they come like hammer blows that are meant to ground us in the grace of Jesus Christ and to remind us that if we are in Christ, we have a security that is unshakable. So as you hear these truths, I pray that that will happen for you if you're in the valley. But I also pray that you will be built up with a stronger foundation for the time that you will walk in that valley. Let us go to the very top of the mountain. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? So Paul's been talking for a lot of chapters about the gospel. And this is how he concludes, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord, help me to help you. See things the way God sees them. This passage is organized around a number of questions. I see four major rhetorical questions, each with an implied answer that gives an incredible truth that is meant to ground us, to help us see that if we are in Christ, we have a security that cannot be shaken so where do we ground this security this unshakable foundation and security let's look at the first question in verse 31 if God is for us who can be against us the implied truth here is God is for us so nothing can finally stand against us God is for us So nothing can finally stand against us. This is the grand truth, the overarching truth of everything else that Paul says here and everything else that I intend to say as well. A truth that we need to remember when our hearts fail us. When we don't feel that this is true, we need to remember that this is true. Paul is actually making an argument in this statement so that when our hearts fail us, our minds, at least, may be persuaded through strong evidence that God is for us. And therefore, nothing can stand against us. When you are in the valley, this is the picture that you need to see from the top. Now, Paul is not quite saying that nothing can be or is against us. I know that's what the text says, but let me qualify it. He is saying that nothing can finally be against us. Nothing can successfully prevail against us. I mean, think of Paul's life. Surely he understands what many of us understand, that there are many things against him. Many people against him. He had people that opposed his ministry quite drastically. People that drove him and drug him out of town and beat him, stoned him within an inch of his life. People that dragged him before courts. People that... Sentenced him to prison and eventually to death. Paul knew many people who were against him. Also, the devil was against him. That's why he can write in Ephesians 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood. But our battle is against the rulers against the authorities these are speaking of demonic rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places paul knew what it was to be opposed by man for man to stand against him for satan to stand against him he also knew what it was like to suffer physically he had a thorn in the flesh that the lord would not remove he was acquainted with weakness. Many things were against him, and yet God was for him. And God is for us if we are in Christ, and therefore nothing can successfully, finally stand against us. Before Paul asks this rhetorical question in verse 31, he asks another question. What then shall we say to these things? What are these things that he's responding to? As I mentioned before the reading, he's referring, I think, to all of the gospel truths he's been expounding for eight chapters. But most immediately to the truths that he just unloaded at the end of the passage last week in verses 29 to 30, which I think ground this assertion that if God is for us, nothing can stand against us. Look at those verses again. Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined. Those He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those Those whom he justified, he also glorified. When Paul is saying God is for us and nothing therefore can stand against us, what he is saying is that this chain cannot be broken. When God begins a good work, he will carry it out until completion. There is nothing that can get in the way of that. Nothing that can thwart that. God doesn't fail. He is God. And so if God sets His heart on people before the foundation of the world, if He foreknows them in His love and predestines them to be conformed to the image of His Son, then guess what? They will hear the Gospel. They will believe the Gospel. And in believing, they will be justified by God. Declared not guilty. And if God has done all of that, and He will surely also glorify them. They will be delivered from this world of sin, from these bodies of sin. What God starts, He finishes. If He is for us, nothing can stand against us. If you are in Christ, you have eternal security. You are safe and secure. But friends, let me tell you that the doctrine of eternal security, which I believe in full well, is grounded in a very simple truth. It is this. God saves. You don't save yourself. Nobody else saves you. And if God saves, He saves from beginning all the way to the end. What He starts, He will finish. And so if he has begun a work in you, you can have confidence that he will complete it. If he is for you, nothing can stand against us. Paul wants to drive this truth home to make it so clear what it means for God to be for us. So that we can have assurance When the winds and the waves and the troubles and the trials come our way. And so this is the main point. God is for us. But in the next three points, he's going to elaborate on what this means. He's going to ground this assertion in other truths and show us a little bit more specifically what it means that God is for us. So let's begin by looking At the next thing, the second rhetorical question in verse 32. And let's read it again. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This may be my favorite verse in all of the Bible. How, how marvelous. The, the argument is really simple. It's an argument from greater to lesser. If God did this great thing, the greatest thing, then surely we can have confidence that He will do lesser things. Still great, but lesser. So this is the point that He is making. God's generosity in the past guarantees our future glory. What God has done, the greatest thing, surely secures the other things that are to come. God did not spare His own Son. I hope you feel it this morning, either now or when you leave, that this is the greatest thing. My wife sings this, as I've told you before, to our kids every night. And I hope and pray that they will come to believe it and that you will as well. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how He loves me. Oh, how He loves you and me. God loved the world in such a way that He gave His one and only Son. God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for our sins. Nothing more generous. The Father sent the Son to take on flesh. He had to become a man. He who was fully God, Christ the Son, Jesus the Son, had to become fully human to pay the price for our sin. God sent His Son to die in our place, and He did. What more could he give? If he's willing and able to give that greatest thing, then surely he is willing and able to continue his work of salvation all the way to the end. It's not simply his ability that's emphasized. It's more his willingness, his generosity, his grace. God graciously gives us all The most gracious thing is the gift of His Son. It will surely be a gracious and generous thing when we receive our eternal inheritance on that last day. But Paul says, I want you to notice this, how will He not also together with Him graciously give us all things? You see, there's a sense in which Everything in your life, if you are in Christ, everything is a gracious gift from God. Everything from the time that you were born again till the time that you will be brought home, all of that is God's gracious generosity towards you. And hear me on this even the hard stuff that you're going through right now. I believe that all things, for those who are in Christ, means all things. So even the hard things are in some way a gracious gift to you from God. And Why can we say that? Because of what Paul said in verse 28, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. It doesn't say that He works all things together for good for all people. It says that He works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. So if you are in the valley today, you need to remember. You need to look out and see God's gracious generosity to you in the past. He gave His only Son. And how will He not also give us all things? Our future reward, yes. Many blessings in this life now and even difficulties that we are called to endure. We need this perspective from the mountaintop. When we're living in the valley, Paul's next point God justifies sinners, so there's no condemnation for us. This comes out in verses 33 to 34. There are actually two questions in these verses, but I've combined them because they basically teach one point. Let me read them again, and I think you'll see. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. God justifies sinners. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But did you know that Satan loves nothing more than to bring charges against you. So Paul asks the question, who can bring a charge against us? Satan loves to bring charges against the people of God. He, as the hymn we sang last week says, he tempts you to despair. He tells you of the guilt within. He wants you to question your standing before God right now. In fact, as a, before you walked in today, those voices may have already been in your head. I'm not good enough. But did you know that he not only says to you, you're not good enough? Did you know that he also, we are told in Revelation 12, stands before God day and night accusing the brothers. He's not only speaking to you that you're not good enough, he's standing before God and saying, they are not worthy of your favor. And did you know that he has a lot of true things to say to God about us? We've given him plenty of ammunition in his charges and case against us. We have sinned blatantly. We have sinned grossly. And He brings all of that to our minds. He brings all of that before God and says, they're not worthy of your favor, God. It's not as though Satan doesn't have A case against us. That's not the point Paul's making. The point Paul is making is it won't stick. It will not ultimately stand. If you are in Christ, Christ died for your sins. What is more, He is raised and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. His resurrection from the dead, His session at the right hand of God shows that His work on the cross is complete, it is sufficient. He has made an end of all of your sins. And if you have trusted in Christ, there is now, therefore, no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. You are justified. God declares you not guilty. He declares you righteous. And so as Satan speaks to God and says, they're not good enough. Look at what they have done. Jesus says to the Father, yes, I know they have sinned awfully and it grieves me greatly. But I died for that sin. And for that one. And for that one. For all of them. So Father. Forgive them. Look on me. Who made an end of all of their sin. And pardon them. And that's what God does. That's the way God sees you if you are in Christ. He looks on the perfect righteousness of Christ, not your sinfulness. He is for you, and therefore nothing, no nothing, can stand against you. Throughout this sermon, I've been qualifying all of these points. I keep saying, if you are in Christ, God is for you. If you're in Christ, there is no condemnation. So before we turn to this final point, let me just stop and ask, are you in Christ? Are you in Christ? Have you come to see that you are, in fact, a sinner? A sinner who deserves God's condemnation. His just judgment. That's who you are apart from Christ. But that through Christ and only through Christ, no other way, He has paid the price for your sins. And if you will cling to Him by faith, repent of your sins, turn to Him that you are forgiven. That you are righteous that there is now no condemnation for you. If you have not yet done that, let me just say, all of this wonderful, glorious, mountaintop talk about security and assurance, apart from Christ, it is not true for you. But if you come to Christ, all of it will be true for you. So will you come today? Let us now turn to the final point that Paul is making, and I think the main point. He's been talking of our judicial standing before God. Now he moves to God's love. God loves us, he tells us, and nothing can separate us from his love. Verse 35, Paul asks, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he lists a number of things that could be contenders for doing that. The implied answer, rhetorical question, is none of those things can. Then, in verse 38, he lists a number of other things that maybe could separate us from the love of Christ. But he says, no, I'm convinced, I'm sure, I'm persuaded. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So the beginning and the end of this section say the same thing. We've got these lists of things that maybe could separate us, but the implied answer is no. But why? Why can we say God loves us and nothing can separate us from that love. I think there's a clue in the middle of those two, two lists. In the middle of those two lists, in poetry, there's a quotation there from Psalm 44. And that psalm gives us a clue. You see, it seems like it stands out, that it doesn't belong there. But whenever we see a psalm quoted in a passage, we need to go back and read that whole psalm. See what that whole psalm is saying and how Paul may be using a part of it to make his point, maybe evoking the entire psalm to make his point. Let me just summarize it for you real quick. And hopefully the lights will come on of why we cannot be separated from the love of God in Christ. The psalmist is in trouble He begins by recounting all of the wonderful things that God has done for his people in the past. He drove the nations out of the promised land. He planted Israel in the promised land. And he acknowledges this was not of their own doing. This was because of God's great power, God's great might, God's great grace and favor that he had toward his people. He had blessed them. And yet, they were living now in a time where they were not experiencing this blessing at all it seemed as though god had rejected them he didn't go out with their armies they are being given over every day like sheep to be slaughtered the psalmist actually asked god are you asleep have you forgotten us have you rejected us It felt that way. And maybe as you are going through hard things right now, it feels that way to you as well. But the psalmist knew in his heart of hearts that God is a God who does not forsake his people. And he keeps his promises. And so he cries out to the Lord, Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. There it is. What is the psalmist's confidence that in the midst of all of this trial that the Lord will hear him and answer him? It's because of his steadfast love. What is his steadfast love? It's not simply his feelings towards us. It is his commitment, his covenant commitment to his people that cannot be broken. And so while things felt like they were spinning out of control and that God was against him, the psalmist says, I know God. He will act according to His steadfast love. And Paul is saying something similar to us this morning. Nothing can separate us from God's steadfast love. His covenant love. You see, in Christ... God has made it very clear that He is committed to His promises. In Christ, we have been chosen before the foundation of the world. In Christ, we have been redeemed. And in Christ, we will one day reach our heavenly inheritance. There's nothing that can separate us from God's love because it is a covenant love, a steadfast love Nothing can undo God's promises. Nothing can derail God's work of salvation. No trials, no tribulations, no distress, no depression. No persecution, no opposition, no hardships, no famine, no nakedness, no sword. Nothing can threaten God's loving commitment to His people God is for us covenantally. And He has secured that covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ. And what that means is that even when everything seems like it's defeat, we are conquerors. God has accomplished a sweeping victory for us in Christ. A sweeping victory. And if you are in Christ, guess what? You've been swept up into that victory. Paul says that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. Christ suffered unto death, but was raised to glory. Through Him, those of us who suffer now will one day also be raised to glory. The sweeping victory that God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, which has secured His covenant love toward us. We are caught up into that. We are more than conquerors in all of it. God is on your side. You can't, you won't lose the battle. So when you face trials and troubles... Do you face them as conquerors in Christ? Not me. Not I've got this. As we love to say. But God's got me. In Christ. I'm not defeated. I'm discouraged maybe, but I'm not deflated. Because in Christ, God wins. Take a look, friends, out from the mountaintop. We are more than conquerors. Do you believe it? Do you believe that nothing can separate you from the covenant love of God in Jesus Christ? Nothing physical, neither death nor life. We face a lot of death. It can't separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing spiritual, he says, neither angels nor rulers Speaking of demons, nothing in the time, neither things present nor things to come, nothing in space, neither height nor depth. God has secured a salvation for you in Christ that cannot be broken. Nothing in all of creation can separate you from God's love, not even your sin, not even the doubt. you are maybe experiencing now. If you are in Jesus. You are safe. And secure. Who saves. God saves. And if God saved you. Then he will bring you home. His plan. And his promises don't fail. They won't fail. They can't fail. You are secure. In Jesus Christ. If you are living in the valley today. I invite you, again, to come to the top of the mountain of Romans 8. Feast your eyes on the glorious riches of His grace and Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, I know what is true of me, and I suspect it is true of everybody else here today as well. I spend most of my life not seeing things rightly. Discouraged. As I look at my sin, as I look look at the difficulties that are going on around me, and I know that there are many here today that feel that. But God, there's a bigger story, a bigger reality than that which is in front of us right now. And I pray that you would help us to see that. I pray that you would help us to see that from eternity past all the way to eternity future, that you have accomplished salvation for your people. It's not in question we would rest secure in that. For those who have not yet clinged to Christ by faith, I pray today, now, that Your Spirit would convict them of sin, show them their need for a Savior, and convince them of Your grace and Your mercy in Christ. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen.